Well, it took a long time, but the Grey Report is finally out, and it looks like they've got away with it, despite some pretty arrogant behaviour. Hopefully, it's the last we'll ever hear of Partygate. Ricky Gervais, a new Netflix show. I think it's really funny, but yes, he takes the mickey out of everybody, including trans people. We'll debate and discuss tonight. Is he funny, or is it offensive? And Glocklin One is going to tell us what being a TV chef is and how you could learn to cook great Chinese food at home. Good evening. Finally, yes, finally, we got the Sue Gray report, all 60 pages of it. And probably this is going to be absolutely the last instalment in Partygate. I bet there are many of you, I'm one of them, who hope we never hear about it again. What did the report tell us? Well, in a sense, nothing we didn't know before, but it did highlight the sheer arrogance of those working within number 10. Still really a bunch of university students living it up. I thought the most appalling comment that came out of all of it was from Martin Reynolds, senior civil servant in number 10, who after the big bring your own booze garden party on a WhatsApp message said to somebody, I think we've got away with it. And in many ways, that kind of sums up for me where we are. I think they have got away with it. Uh, I don't think in the longer term it'll do them any good. I think the Prime Minister's reputation is holed below the waterline. I don't think it can ever recover. In a snap poll this afternoon, two-thirds of the country thinks he should resign. But interestingly, of that same sample, 83% thought that he wouldn't resign, and I suspect that they're right. My own feeling is, led by Boris Johnson, they're out of ideas, they're in trouble, they've been in office for a long, long time, and they're heading towards the electoral rocks at the next election in 23 or 24. Have they got away with it? What do you think, guys? Farage at GBnews.uk. That's my view. Darren McCaffrey, our political editor. We've had common statements. We've had press, we've had conference. press conferences. Yeah. We've had the electorate that really matter for this, which isn't people out there in the country. It's the Conservative members of Parliament at the 1922 committee. I did see one Conservative member yeah. of Parliament, J Julian Surdy, breaking rank, saying yeah, Boris should resign. But realistically, is that pretty much it? I, I think it is. I mean, you know, there is no doubt, as you say, the Sue Gray report is damaging for the Prime Minister. It is damaging for those that worked at Number 10. Mm. And brazen breaking of the rules. 4.30am finishes, wine over the red carpet, having a goes at the cleaners and the custodians mm. for, who, who, who wanted people to stop partying. Altercations, broken swings. I mean, it's, it is incredible. People sitting on people's laps, all I sorts mean, it, of it, things. It, it, yeah. You know, when you yeah. think about it, what went on, Pretty but we kind of knew that was coming, but we, but we? we knew that. We knew yeah. that. And the Prime Minister's defence, and he has got a defence, is pretty clear, which is essentially, like, lots of this happened when I wasn't there. In fact, much of it happened when he wasn't even in Downing Street. And that when he attended these events, he thought they were work events. Must be said it was the conclusion of the Metropolitan Police as well. In terms of his Conservative backbenchers, I thought, actually, the most notable thing today was when the Prime Minister stood up to make that statement. I was in the press gallery, and most of them just walked out. And I think that's a sign of that there's not necessarily overwhelming support for the Prime Minister on this. In fact, quite the opposite, where mm. MPs are sick to the back teeth of it. They're quite embarrassed, I think, by it. They're not prepared to front up and defend the Prime Minister on this particular issue. And they also just want to draw a line under it. And so in the end, that's, I think, what's going to save the Prime Minister, is that they just want to move on 
pretty much like everyone else, I think, to a large degree. Yes, there's people who are very angry about that out, out there. It has done a damage. I think you're right. It will cost them votes at the next uh, election. But fundamentally, there's a mood within the party. They do not want to start a new leadership race. There's no obvious successor. No, there. and that's really the key to all of this, I think, isn't it? But there are other events coming up. There are by-elections coming up. We've got one, of course, in Devon coming up, one in Yorkshire coming up. Um, yeah, I suspect he's going to stay as leader for some time to come now. Uh, you know what, the, the strangest thing today is, actually the most uncomfortable the Prime Minister was, and you, you're right, we saw a lot of him today, and he did fess up and he apologised and he put himself out, there's no doubt about that, and there's still questions that many feel are unanswered, but, you know, he did take questions almost from everyone uh, today. But bizarrely, or, or maybe unsurprisingly actually, the most uncomfortable he was today was at Prime Minister's Question Time, and it wasn't answering questions about Sue Gray, it was asking questions about the economy. It was mm. asking questions about how does he solve this really, really difficult, sticky place that we find ourselves in with low economic growth and rising inflation? And it's undoubted tomorrow we're going to hear from the Chancellor. Almost certainly there's going to be a windfall tax. Yes, it's going to be tapered to companies who invest more. But that's a bit of a humiliation for the government too. Labour campaigning for months on that. They've been all over the place, ruling it out, ruling yeah, it oh, in. I knew they'd do it, Darren. When I heard the Prime Minister say he, he didn't like the idea, I knew it was exactly what he'd do. But I think, I think, and once you've done it on yeah. this sector, Mm. Why not other sectors that are doing well? Well, and, and I think this, but, but also I think this is part of the wider narrative where the government are really struggling is what, because it's so big, but what are mm. they going to do? Because ultimately, whatever they do tomorrow, and I think it is going to be pretty big, talking about £11 billion, but it's not going to be enough. And that's the problem. This is not potentially ever going to be enough. And it's going to roll on for months and months maybe well into next year. And I think that's the big challenge Ooh. for Boris Johnson now uh, going forward. And, and, and that's the real concern, I think, for the Conservatives coming into the next election, is, yes, this will do some damage, but it will be nothing, potentially, to the economic kind of ruinous state, to a degree, that Britain might find itself in as they go to yep, the polls. Yep, stagflation. And 9.30 tomorrow morning, we get immigration figures, which are likely to be an all-time record. So we'll talk to you again it's tomorrow, Darren. Very strange, just very briefly, like, yeah. incredibly strange, isn't it? We're seeing massive immigration numbers, mm. and it's really not part of the political narrative. And I suspect that might not stay the case for very long. No, I agree. Darren, thank you very much. Indeed. Well, I made the point, you know, they have been in government since 2010, albeit the first five years of that was in a coalition. But it's a long time to be in government. Uh, so by the time the next election comes, it'll be 13 or 14 years. And it is quite normal after those periods of time that governments do change. Uh, but I just have this feeling, as I said earlier, that under Boris Johnson, they're headed for the electoral rocks. Well, joining me is Lord Jonathan Marland, a former trade envoy, of course, to the Prime Minister. Jonathan, the party's out of ideas, isn't it? Well, we'll see. I mean, I think... Well, it's well right now it's out of ideas. Oh, yes, right now. Well, it, of course, it's been crisis management of three big crises. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are obviously beaten up by it. So now is the time they've got to show, as, I, as you've kind enough to have me on the programme before, Nigel, with what, uh, what they're going to do about cost of living crisis, what they're going to do about energy bills, which is something you and I have been in agreement with on, and uh, what the future holds in this incredibly difficult time. I think, as you said, people have had Partygate now. Uh, I saw the polling yesterday, the Conservative polling yesterday, I was made aware of it. You know, it's not something on the agenda. Uh, you're right in but what you But it's done damage, it's done reputational damage. It is done to damage Boris Johnson of, in particular. of great integrity and... Uh, uh, and Boris, in fairness, has taken the brunt of it, even though, uh, as your report very 
carefully said, you know, he isn't complicit in a lot of this, but he has taken the brunt of it. Mm. Um, that has done great damage to integrity. In fact, and if uh, the Labour Party have been involved up in Durham, it's done great damage to political integrity uh, at a time where people want to believe in politics and politicians that they can solve their daily problems of cost of living, energy bills, mm. etc. So I think uh, it's an important time to reboot. You're absolutely right in what you say. Well, rebooting needs a new leadership and a new direction, doesn't it? No, I don't think that's true. I, I really don't think that's true because firstly you've got to work out who that leader's going to be and uh, whereas I'm a great admirer of the potential candidates, I don't think they're quite ready for it yet. Uh, I think Boris has got the intellectual ability and the energy, and you've known, you've known him as, uh, as long as I have, uh, to really um, pull, him, pull, him, pull, pull us out of this mess. He's got the drive and the energy and the optimism. And that's what we're going to need as a nation. And that's what you sold. Optimism, energy, drive, At his best, Boris Johnson can do all of these things. Yeah. We saw that as mayor of London and holding that seat, you know, holding that position in the second election. I get all of that. I just feel when it comes to economics, he doesn't really, hasn't really got a clue what he's doing, it seems to me. There's no real direction. And I think under him, they're bound to lose the next election. Mm -hmm. It will be 13 or 14 years since they first came into office. Uh, they are looking, they're looking tired. And hey, Sleaze is back. I mean, it feels like 95, 96, Jonathan. You know, then Sleaze was people having affairs. Now it's people going to prison. Yes, the interesting comparison there is you're absolutely right. You know, it does have a feel of that. Of course, then the economy was in a terrific position. I mean, we had the economy in no greater position yeah. than we did then. So it'll be interesting to see what slack he's cut. I think the problem he has is that he's not being served well by the economists in the Bank of England or the, the thinking of the Bank of England. They're behind the curve. I don't think he's being served uh, particularly well by the civil service at the moment, if I'm, if I'm honest, in that I don't think the machinery is working properly. It hasn't come back into life after COVID. Yeah. And so those are two of the issues which uh, he's going to get, have to get his mind around. But, uh, and he, you know, he, is, he knows he's on the naughty step. You know, let's be fair, he knows he's on the naughty step. Uh, but I have great confidence that he is the man to, uh, uh, to lead us out of this. If we can get cohesive thinking, cohesive energy and drive and a, a, and a clear path that the British public understand, and that's the key to it, is understanding, then I think uh, it's too early to tell whether he's going to lose the next election. Do you think he's a truthful man? Well, I, I, I can't get into that. I mean, well, it's that, a, you know, because, because actually, I'm not getting into accusations well, no, no, of whether he no, no, is. No, I wasn't asking But I tell you what I do. I was, I was making a point. Yeah. I was making no, a I know, point. I know your point. And the point is that the public yeah. are looking. And yes, Starmer, there's been one party. Yeah. He didn't tell the truth about it. It's damaged him. But here's been a culture, a culture that's existed within yeah. Number 10. Not all of it Johnson's fault, but a culture that's existed, yeah. one of contempt and arrogance for mm. the rest of the country. And, and that's how it comes across. And this, in the end, this comes down to the integrity yes. of Boris Johnson as a yeah. person. Yeah. Hence my question. Well, I, as I said earlier, I think he has to regain political integrity. I think all of politics has got to regain political integrity because I think people are thinking at the moment of plague on all their houses. One thing I would say about Boris, and you know, one could say it about you, he's a lucky general. Mm -hmm. And he's shown he, has, he has shown he's got the resources to show global leadership on Ukraine, which is one of the great tragedies of our recent lifetime. Uh, he has shown great leadership on vaccines and, and our way out of vaccines. And I, I think he's got that uh, ability to 
shows how we get out, out of this current terrible mess. And this isn't a mess that's going to happen for a couple of months. This is, this is serious. Well, he's going to have to regain trust because that I think totally right. I think that's what he's lost. Totally right. And it's going to be a hell of a job. Jonathan Marland, thank you very much indeed for coming in and joining us here on GB News. Thank you, Nigel, very much. Well, senior civil servant Martin Reynolds said, I think we've got away with it after the big booze up in the garden. And I think they've all got away with it after the Grey report. Your reactions, Paul says, to be quite honest, I couldn't care less anymore. Maybe that was the plan of a delayed report. Dodo says, yes. And good riddance. It's boring. Move on. Joe says, yes, they have. Charlie says, Boris has absolutely gotten away with the Partygate scandal. We need to have faith in our leaders to act with integrity and so that we can actually support them. Boris has lost the respect of many millions he won over in 2019 and he won't get them back. And Charlie, that's how I feel about this. I made that point to Lord Marlon a moment ago. He's going to have to win back the trust of the public and that is not going to be easy. And Neville says, shame on the government for the pain and suffering inflicted on people, families and businesses unnecessarily. Rest assured, we won't be duped for a second time. And finally, Ryan says, they have for now, but who knows what else Dominic Cummings may have up his sleeve. I mean, I do hope that not only is it the end of Partygate? But I hope it's the end of us hearing about Dominic Cummings and this bitter and twisted campaign against his former employer. It really isn't very pretty. Now, humour. It's difficult being a comedian. We had Bobby Davro here in the studio last Thursday. So many jokes the comedians used to be able to tell, sketches they were able to put on television that now simply aren't allowed. And indeed, if comedians go down that route, they very often finish up being cancelled. Ricky Gervais, in some ways, is in a slightly different class. He's one of those people who can get away with a lot more than anybody else. He's done a big new show for Netflix, and he does caveat all of this at the beginning by saying he's not directly attacking any groups or holding malice towards any groups, but he did have this to say about the trans community. Have a listen, see what you think. The old-fashioned women. Oh, God. You know, the ones with wombs. Oh. <laughs> Those <laughs> dinosaurs. <laughs> no, I love the, the new women. I know the new women. They're great, aren't they? You know, the new ones we've been seeing lately. The, the ones with beards and <laughs> They're as good as... They're as good as gold. I love them. No, it's the old-fashioned. And now the old-fashioned, they're like, oh, they want to use our toilets. Why shouldn't they use your toilets? For ladies. They are ladies. Look at their pronouns. <laughs> what about this person that isn't a lady? Well, his penis. <laughs> Her penis, you <laughs> bigot. <laughs> well, listen, I think it's very good. I think it's very funny. I think it reflects perhaps the discomfort that many millions feel um, about the way gender is being reassigned. And a lot of people are confused by it. Uh, and there's Gervais making fun of it. But I have no doubt there are others who find this deeply, deeply offensive. How? Do we get the balance right on this? Because that actually is what it's all about. We're very pleased to say that Peter Tatchell is joining me, human rights campaigner, director of the Peter Tatchell 
Foundation. Um, Peter, that was pretty funny as a clip, wasn't it? Well, I am a great fan of Ricky Gervais. 99% of the stuff he does, I absolutely think he's a brilliant comedian. But I do find it disappointing that he chooses to go for vulnerable people like the trans community. I mean, they are already getting enough stick without being mocked and ridiculed in comedy routines. And I know he did caveat his performance by saying that he totally supports trans rights and that he's just making a joke. It's not meant to be taken seriously. It doesn't reflect his point of view. But nevertheless, it does feed into the current toxic atmosphere about trans issues. And I just saw sort of draw a comparison, you know, can you imagine how we would feel if at the height of Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech, comedians made racist jokes? Uh, I don't think we just dismiss it and say it's just a joke. Um, that would be fueling, you know, a particular toxic racist narrative of Enoch Powell and others at the time. So I feel very uncomfortable well, about it. Peter, um, back in 1968, uh, which is the speech you refer to was when it was made, uh, there were all sorts of jokes being told. I mean, there were almost no limits on the jokes people could tell. And I've no doubt some people found those jokes offensive and some found them funny. But you talk about the trans community as being vulnerable. Well, I saw um, a trans a pregnant trans man on a Calvin Klein Mother's Day advert a few weeks ago. I mean, that, that, that individual was also uh, busy uh, with pictures on TikTok. Um, not all trans people are vulnerable, surely. Well, I mean, overall, we know the statistics that trans people, in particular trans women, are subject to much higher levels of prejudice than most other groups in society. They suffer more discrimination, more hate crime, and indeed more sexual assaults. Uh, and as a result, their mental health is poorer than the average person. So in those circumstances, I think we have to be very careful about making jokes, even if they're not intended to be harmful, because that can further fuel the sense of alienation, of, of marginalization and pressure that trans people feel. So I'm all in favor of you know, being kind to people, you know, I, I want to. I don't want to harm anybody or hurt anyone unnecessarily. And I just think that there are so many other good topics, like Ricky Gervais. His um, big one-hour special on animals was awesome. You know, he was defending animals. He was taking a pot, po uh, a poke at um, those who abuse animals in uh, farms, uh, circuses, and medical laboratories. That was really comedy on the side of the victims. And I just wish you'd do more of that. You know, take a pot shot at transphobes and those who are fueling the anti-trans agenda. Well, actually, you could argue that sketch either way, couldn't you? I mean, you could argue, you could argue uh, he was making a joke about those that were laughing in, 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 in the sense of their prejudice. But Peter, you know, a lot of jokes are about short people or tall people or fat people or very thin people or, I mean, isn't this the point? I mean, do you really want us to limit the content matter that comedians could put out? Surely it's up to us as consumers to make a decision as to what we're prepared to spend our money on. Ideally, there should be no limits. I agree. But we also have to think about consequences. And, you know, there are com great comedians like Michael McIntyre and Sarah Millican who don't 
go straight to the jugular. <laughs> they don't dig the knife into the vulnerable groups in the same way that Ricky has done in this particular show. Mind you, it needs to be added that most of this show is not about trans issues. It's actually a critique of no. supernatural and superstitious beliefs. And he's having a go at organized religion. And, um, you know, that that's probably something that a lot of people can relate to. And, of course, organized religion is very powerful. It's not as if it's a powerless institution. No, but also there are lots of people involved in organized religion who may well find that offensive. I mean, it may be a few years ago, but the life of Brian caused outrage amongst the churches, if you remember, when it came out. Uh, maybe, Peter, the answer to all of this is maybe we all need to get a bit of a thicker skin. And maybe what Ricky Gervais has done is to reopen the door to comedians being able to make fun of a wider range of subjects. And maybe that's a good thing if we believe in free speech, even if at times it's in bad taste. Well, on your point about, you know, people of religious belief being offended, I think there's a big difference between ridiculing an idea and ridiculing a person. You know, I, I may not agree with everyone, but, you know, I, I try to avoid, you know, ridiculing or disrespecting people. But I will certainly challenge some ideas that I find uh, disagreeable and offensive. And I think we need to make that distinction. What Vic Ricky has done here is not targeted an idea. He's targeted a group of people who are already on the receiving end or an awful lot of toxic abuse. And I just think uh, he could find, you know, better, stronger targets and, you know, you know, go for the rich and the powerful, go for the people who, who, who've got, you know, plenty and, and privilege. Um, go for those people rather than the weak and the vulnerable. All right, Peter Tatchell, as ever, great to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show here with me on GB News. Well, we're all going to have different points of view. I just think it's actually very funny. Uh, and I think he's got the courage and the guts to take on issues that many other comedians are now just too frightened to talk about. And that is something that is really important in a free society. And I think he's actually beginning to turn that around. So I have to say I praise him fully for it. Now, my What the Farage moments today. Well, the first one really is pretty astonishing. And it's fuel prices. Now, oil is still trading at around about $113 a barrel. It hasn't really moved for several weeks. And yet, the price at the pumps still goes up. This morning, the average petrol price was £1.70 a litre, and the average price for diesel was 181 pence a litre. Although I did see, coming in through South London today, 183s and 184s on diesel. Something is happening here. I don't know. I just feel that we are being ripped off. I feel that 20% VAT on all of this is just too excessive. And we're going to get a big statement from the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, tomorrow. He's going to put in place, we believe, these windfall taxes on oil and gas companies. But I think the price at the pump equally is as much of a concern as what people's gas bills are going to be in, say, the October of this year. And I want to appeal to anybody out there that knows this industry well, because I checked the other day, I had Howard Cox on from the Fair Fuel campaign, and I checked his numbers, and he's right. Wholesale diesel is cheaper than wholesale petrol at this moment in time by seven or eight pence a litre. And yet, at the pumps, 
diesel is between 13 and 14p more expensive than unleaded. I've tried to research this. I've tried to find the answer. I can't get to the bottom of it. I can't help feeling we're being absolutely ripped off in the most extraordinary way. But if somebody out there, please, has got the answer to this, let me know what it is. Farage at gbnews.uk. Now, are we going back to the 1970s? Strikes, 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 why do we bother? Because the RMT have held a ballot of their members. Their members have overwhelmingly backed strike action. It's now in the hands of their General Secretary, Mick Lynch, to decide when this is going to be. I think, as a result of the pressure that's been put on, it's unlikely to happen for the Jubilee long weekend, but it'll probably happen immediately thereafter. All I would say is this, our rail services across the country, the firms have all been losing money. Much of it has had to be nationalised during lockdown. The system is creaking. And a lot of men and women working in the railways have hung on to their jobs when had they been in other sectors, they probably would have lost them. And I think by going on strike at this time, by demanding a 10% pay increase and better conditions, I get it, everyone's salaries are falling behind the rate of inflation, but right now, RMT and others, a strike will not do you or your industry any good. And I think it's likely to finish up with more of your members actually being made redundant. So please think carefully before you do it. And Prince William, an extraordinary intervention. Prince William dressed up in medical garb, photographs rather resembling what his mother used to do 25 years ago or so. Uh, and there he was at the Marston Hospital visiting something called a man van. And that is where they're encouraging men to come in to get cancer checks, particularly prostate cancer checks. And as is well known, men tend to be quite reluctant to go and get these sort of tests and get these examinations. So, Prince William's suggestion is that you give them a free pint. And if you give men a free pint, more of them will turn up and get tested for prostate cancer. I don't know whether he's right, I don't know whether he's wrong, but I do actually rather like where he's coming from. Well, welcome back. It's time for Talking Pints. We've rolled out the barrel. This is the first day this has been in action. Uh, Quatland One, welcome. Thank you for having me. To the show. Very good to Thank see you. Thank you. Mm. Your family. Yes. Came here from Hong Kong. That's right. A few years ago. Yeah, well, before I was born anyway, so. Well, yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot more families are now coming yeah. from Hong Kong. And I guess when you came here, when your family or grandparent, grandfather came here, the Hong Kong economic miracle hadn't really kicked no, off. No, I mean, obviously, they were going through the civil, there was like a lot of, lot of things happening in China at the time. So it was about 1955, yeah. and um, obviously my granddad um, and my grandma who were in Hong Kong, um, the Chinese were jumping the border, so it made it quite uncomfortable, because their village actually bordered, um, was actually on the border. So, uh, and they had the idea, uh, they were given the opportunity to move to England. And um, so my granddad jumped on a boat and literally was a slow boat from China. Yeah. Uh, it took a month to get here. And um, slowly, slowly started to bring the family over, so. And he decided 
that the one thing that had to be done yeah. was Chinese food. Yeah, it was either a laundry or Chinese, wasn't it, really, in <laughs> yeah. the 1950s. So, yeah, laundrettes or Chinese, like say, Chinese takeaways and Chinese restaurants. So that tradition's gone, you're now generation three doing this. Yeah, third generation. So yeah, so dad came over, oh, I'm just trying to think when my dad would have come over, so it would have been in the 60s sometime. So granddad was here, opened the Hung Lao, which was a Chinese, it was actually Lester's first Chinese restaurant in 1962. And the menu consisted of chop suey, um, a little bit of sweet and sour, then roast chicken and tomato soup and a bread roll. Because, um, you know, obviously back, back then it wasn't that easy to get a hold of Chinese ingredients and they still had to get the ingredients shipped over. Um, and then dad came over and started to work in the restaurants and um, yeah, and then obviously I, it got passed down to me, thank well. Do your family, <laughs> so, I mean, do you still have any, any contacts in Hong Kong? Family you, members, that sort yeah, of thing? Yeah, so we're, we're quite lucky actually, because the, um, because the land borders China, we actually own quite a lot of property still uh, that borders China. Um, there's a place called Shatukok or Tam Shu Hang. And um, so yeah, my, my cousins are over there, my uncles are over there. They, you know, cousins like me, British-born Chinese, but decided to go back to Hong Kong and live out the rest of their life over there. So yeah. Yeah, it's having a troubled time, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it, it's strange as well, because obviously you hear the press here, and then obviously what's going on. But then when I talk to my cousin, well, whether he's right or he's particularly one cutway, and uh, I say, you know, well, how is it over mm. there? And he goes, it's fine. So it's, it's strange that I would get that report from him yeah. when we hear about what's well, actually going on. Well, I guess it's face, fine so. if you're not critical of the well, government yeah, yeah, well, yeah. or wanting to stand in an election for, for, for a party that's not aligned with the Chinese Communist Party. But I guess if you're just living your life... That's it. I think if you keep yourself to yourself and you just get, get on with your job or get on with your, you know, your life, I don't think there's a problem. But then, like you say, there are other Chinese that I know that have recently come to England and they've had to come to England mm. because they've said something out of turn or out of line and the Chinese government didn't like it and all of a sudden they are literally running for their lives. So again, you're hearing one story from one person, another story from someone else. So, and I, I guess it's like same coin, two sides. Yeah, so. yeah. So Chinese cooking, Chinese restaurants, uh, the, the, the culture of Chinese food here in this country has changed a bit since that restaurant opened in Leicester in 1962. Yeah, so uh, just a bit. Would you say, on balance, you think most Chinese restaurants are pretty good? I mean, how do you... When you look around... No is the answer. Right. I think the Go problem on. is now is that, the, like I say, my generation and obviously the generation after me, are they really still going into restaurants? So, so you, you can go to a restaurant, like back in the day, you go to a Chinese restaurant, you can guarantee if you ordered the, you know, the roast duck or the sweet and sour or you know, even a curry, you were pretty much guaranteed to get a certain standard. Yeah. Whereas now I think it's been diluted down so much that now it really is hit and miss. And the thing is, we can go to a Chinese restaurant or takeaway and we can have one meal and it's, you know, it's fantastic. You know, what a great meal. We go back the following week and it's rubbish. Why? Is, is the chef changed? Is there something not right? Is you know, information not being passed down like it was? And it, well, I think it, it's not going to be long, to be quite honest, I think, that especially outside of London, that you're going to go to a Chinese, well, you're not going to go to a Chinese restaurant or takeaway of any, of any quality, to be quite honest, because it is being watered down so much. So, can we cook it better at home? Yes, we can. With your help. <laughs> so, he's he's so, got books to sell. I mean, that's what it's really all about. <laughs> but, no, but that's what you've tried to do, isn't it? Through the books, series of books that you've yeah. produced, you know, and obviously through TV and the stuff that you're doing, increasingly, you're trying to help people at home to learn how to cook this. 
Is it easy? It is really easy, and I think there's this misconception that Chinese food is difficult. Now, don't get me wrong, if you're going to cook a proper Chinese meal, you have to use Chinese ingredients. Now, that might sound like it's common sense, but it's not, because you can walk into any major supermarket now, and you can buy a soy sauce, or an oyster sauce, or even a yeah. five-spice. The problem is, because it's not the authentic taste that you would get from a Chinese supermarket, you're then doing your chili and salt ribs, or you're, you're, you're cooking a chow mein that's got oyster sauce in it, and it's tasting a little bit off. It could be it's a little bit more sour, or it's too sweet, or the five spice just really hasn't got that punch. So, you know, when, when I t t tell anybody, really, if you're going to cook Chinese food, use Chinese ingredients. Where do they, but where do they get them from? It's so easy these days. I, I, I don't know any major city that doesn't have a Chinese or Oriental supermarket. And you've got Amazon, to be quite honest. I mean, like, you know, you know, the pros and cons of Amazon. But the pro is you can get anything. It can be delivered at your door next day. All of this stuff could be with you within 24 hours. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. I mean, I, I got the feeling with lockdown, Restaurants closed, pubs closed. Yep. Um, yes, people were going queuing at supermarkets and all the rest of it, but actually, people were going to butchers and fishmongers, kind of in a way that these local businesses hadn't seen before, and wanting to learn about different cuts of fish and meat and all the rest of it. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing in your game, that lockdown must have been quite good. For the books, it was fantastic. Yeah. I even filmed a show throughout lockdown called Chinese Takeaway Kitchen. It's available yep. on Amazon. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. Yeah, but again, because people were sort of like, they, they, it, it, it's become part of their habit. You know, on a Friday night or a Saturday night, the, you know, the family get you've had a hard week. We're going to go home and we're going to sit down and have a meal together. Now that that meal could be an Indian takeaway, it could be a Chinese yeah. takeaway. But all of a sudden, through lockdown, that wasn't available anymore. And these families were craving that taste, that experience, that family time. Because all, you know, all of a sudden, we've been thrown into this mix and we can't leave the house and we can only leave it for you. And, you know, they're starting to, you know, they need something to look forward to. And, you know, who wouldn't miss, you know, if your favourite thing on a, on, a, on a Friday night is a beef curry fried rice and, you know, and chips and Chinese chips. And all of a sudden, that's not available anymore. Of course, you'd be. I was one of the few. I would say few. I was one of the many <coughs> that queued up the day that we found out McDonald's was going to close. Not that I like McDonald's that much, but purely because I thought, oh, you know what? I'm not going. I really fancy a chicken burger because I knew I wasn't going to be able to get it, and no one knew how long I'm it was going to be. I'm quite shocked yeah. by this. Really. This is the reality of people. You see, don't get me wrong. I haven't had a McDonald's now. My mind just saying that it was not that long, long ago, actually. But you know, I can go six, seven, eight months without a McDonald's. But as soon as I knew that it wasn't going to be become available it became attractive I had to go you know what that's going to be really difficult to mimic at home whereas you know I've got fantastic Indian cookbooks I've got obviously I can cook Chinese Italian food but McDonald's oh how am I going to do that at home? I'm not going to be able to do that at home so therefore I'm going to go and queue like everybody asked for 45 minutes to get a chicken burger now how did you get I'm obviously doing the books I understand that how, how did you get the breaks with television because there's so many people want to do cooking shows on television I how, guess, did, how did you get through yeah I, I guess sort of like it's because I suppose, number one, heritage. So I'm a third generation restaurateur. I'm not one of these, I'm not just saying I can do this. I did this for a living and I'm part of that, you know, that, that heritage. Number two, I've been a teacher for the last 20 odd years. So I, te I teach martial arts. Yep. So therefore I knew I could teach someone how to toss a chow mein or cook a fried rice or do a session duck. And I think because people saw that, I got invited to go on to certain shows. 
you know, I started off on this morning. Yep. I'm now on pat lunch with you know, the amazing yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, who've just been nominated for nominated for an NTA. So come on, guys, Can't be bad. get out there and start Can't voting for Steph's pat lunch. I've got to get that in. Sorry. Yeah, no. Um, and and yeah, you enjoy telly. And I, lo- I love TV. I love TV, live TV. I found um, filming Amazon quite straining because there was scripts to learn. Yeah. Whereas now we can just go and for retakes it. Retakes and you yeah, exa- different angles. Exactly. And, you got to, you know, yeah. exactly. Yes, as you know, with yeah. so many cameras. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love I love TV. I love teaching people. Um, I love food. I mean, you, can, you know, you don't get. And in fact, well. this is I'm actually a lot lighter than I was. So literally seven months ago, I was about four stone heavier. So you know, so but. Yeah, I, I, thought, I thought martial arts people were fit. People, you know what? I was the fastest 27 stone bloke you'll ever meet. Right. Literally. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have argued with you, I well, promise. Yeah, back then, obviously, you know, I'm only 20 stone now. But yeah, I think it's muscle memory. When you've done something for such a long time, it's strange. I, I don't know if you noticed, I was hobbling when I came into the yeah. studios. It's because I'm waiting for a hip operation. That's 45 years of round kicks. Um, but when I'm teaching, because I still teach on a Saturday, it, you, you would never tell that I need a, needed a hip operation because I suppose it's just muscle memory and you move and then after I finish teaching, I hobble back off again, <laughs> which is the bizarrest thing. So, so where do you go from here, cooking-wise? I mean, once, you've, once you've written books about all the Chinese dishes you know, where do you go next? I've got a few ideas and I don't want to give away too much. I've got a few ideas because food, I, I'm like the rest of the people, the cooking shows have been done. I mean, you know, you, know you, can, you, can, you can go to YouTube these days and you can find out how to cook so your favourite favorite dish. Yeah. But there are, there are different ways that we're able to get this information across to make it more interactive, more fun. Um, so, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a few ideas and a few, 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 few things in the pipeline uh, with a certain massive TV channel. So, well, there so, you yeah. go. Can't so, be bad. So that's all good. But we'll see what happens. And again, it's just yeah, it's a waiting game, as we know. TV is one of those things that you just have to be patient with. Well, so. I tell you what, I wish you well. Wish you luck. Thank, thank you very much no, indeed thank you for, for coming me. on with us thank today. You thank you. Okay, we've got a little bit more time tonight for Barrage the Farage. I get complaints that I don't do enough of your questions. Well, tonight we will. And uh, I've kept him here just in case I get the difficult <laughs> ones. So let's give it a go. One viewer asks, here we go, this is one for you. Following Jamie Oliver's recent protest, do we really have an obesity problem? And if so, is more government intervention really the answer? Do we really have an obesity problem? Yeah, we do. We really, really do. And I think the shocking thing is something like a third of youngsters are close to or are actually obese. And that is a pretty shocking number. And the consequences of the long-term health of those kids really isn't good. The second part of your question, is government intervention really the answer? Well. I'm not sure governments intervening in anything is ever really the answer, but I think what governments can do is help to educate. Uh, maybe a bit of a sore subject. We no, just discussed not, it a moment ago. But you know what? I'm very open about my weight and how I was. My parents loved me. They showed me love through feeding us. If we were sad, we ate. If we were happy, we ate. If family came over, we ate. You came round to the house. Nigel, what do you want to eat? Mm. You'd never leave on an empty stomach. Now, obviously... So I think the idea, you know, government, yeah, okay, government may be able to help, but the education needs to start at home. Because obviously my parents didn't realise that they were actually creating this child or children because my brother, my sister and myself were all overweight. Because yeah. they fed us with, you know, they didn't only feed us with love, they fed us with food. And we need to educate 
the families and the parents because obviously at five, six, seven years old, I wasn't going and getting the food myself. I was being fed the yeah. food. So, so the answer is, I think, is, you know, and this is someone from experience, my children aren't fat. Mm. Because mm. they have, we educate but them. Also, they have what they want. But also, look at the over reliance now on take on takeaway food, mm. on food that is very, very high in salt, uh, the wrong kind of fats. And we go back to like, teaching which is people. why cooking exactly. Yeah, and this you know. was something Lee Anderson MP in the House of Commons the other week, you know, talking about people going to food banks, said people need to learn how to cook, and there was the usual confected outrage. But actually, if people do learn to cook, it can be cheaper too, can't it? Yeah, 100%, and healthier. You know, I can cook a fried rice, which is pretty much fat-free. Yeah, we can cook a chow mein that's going to be you know, fat-free and sugar-free. Mm. Yeah, you, you just need to... And talking about food banks, there's a charity that we're working yeah. with now in Leicester, and we're actually going to the food banks next week, actually, to look at what the food's being given out. You know, obviously the tin produce, but also all the fresh produce, because mm. obviously these supermarkets get rid of stuff that they can't. They go to the food banks, and then they're given to people. You give someone who's got no idea how to cook a, 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 you know, a butternut squash or a courgette or an aubergine, they're thinking, well, what can I do with that? Yeah. No. Whereas now the education let's needs to be Let's all learn. Let's all learn. Exactly. No, exactly. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. Mike asks, does Partygate prove anything other than that the rules were never thought through fully? Well, one line of argument, of course, Mike, is that actually, you know, those rules should never have been in place uh, at all. We should never have gone back into second and almost third, effectively, lockdowns. Um, but I think there's a, there is a broader and more important point, and that is that those that were setting the rules, putting these adverts out to scare the life out of us, to tell us to stay at home, people being fined, 6,000 fines that I know of, all over the country, and some of them big fines, that whilst this was happening in Number 10 Downing Street, there was a culture of contempt for the rest of the country. And I requote what Martin Reynolds, the senior, bureaucrat in number 10 said after the garden party on that whatsapp chat on that group he said i think we've got away with it well by the looks of it they have got away with it but the reputation of politics is damaged and that of the prime minister is damaged too and hey you know what we all broke rules during lockdown i broke rules during lockdown if they'd been honest with us about it we wouldn't have gone through months and months of agony, in my view. Mick asks, would you give the Elgin marbles back to Greece? Well, I'll tell you what, if we hadn't kept the Elgin marbles in safekeeping, they would have been completely destroyed, stolen, gone. Uh, we've, been, we've really looked after them for a couple of hundred years really, really well. I still think they're better off in the British Museum. I know some of you will disagree. I've got time for one or two more. Ryan asks, how can we stop the police from becoming involved with woke virtue signalling? Well, look, there is this new campaign, you know, for every police officer, I talked about it last night, every police officer to learn black history, to go through anti-racism training. Uh, and I said last night, whatever they do, they will still get criticism. I don't believe they're adopting the right approach to this at all. And we've learned overnight that some of the people who are actually on that committee overseeing this training are open supporters of Black Lives Matter, a group that wants to defund the police force. So we want our police to be fair and balanced, to treat everybody equally. Uh, but if they try and pander too much to this agenda, they're never going to win. I've got time for one more. Mary asks, 
Tidy garden or wilding, what is your preference? Look, I tell you what, a little bit of wilding around the edges of the garden is a really good idea. It's a good idea for insects, it's a good idea for birds, you might be lucky and even get a hedgehog there. All right, so a little bit of wilding is no bad thing. But to try and rewild 30% of the English countryside, as Boris wants to, is bonkers. Right, I'm back with you again tomorrow night at 7 o'clock.